We are continuing in the chapter, chapter 6 of John, in the Gospel of John series, and we're actually on our third of four sermons, really looking at the bread of life. Um, just a quick overview, um, Jesus has fed the 5,000, they want to make him king, earthly, um, so he leaves, he walks on water, we talked about that already, he uh, goes to Capernaum, and the crowd follows him, and now we've been in this conversation, uh, at some point he's in a synagogue, and now he's teaching that crowd and the locals about who he is, he is the bread of life. This morning we'll be looking at verses 40 to 59, and I do want to give you a warning. Uh, you see it on the, on the uh, screen behind us. Content may be offensive to some audience members. This is a, I'm, okay, we can put the passage up. Um, all the parents are like, what's going to happen? Um, this is a really hard passage. Uh, it's one of my favorites but that doesn't mean I fully understand it. In fact, maybe one of the reasons it's one of my favorites is I don't think I'll ever fully understand it until I see Jesus face to face. But yet we can understand it enough to grow and to grow into this. So let's look together. We'll start at verse 40. So I'll read verse 40. I realize it's not on the slide. And then we'll go through verse 59. Hear the word of the Lord. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God or by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers or the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we are so thankful and yet unsure of all the meaning behind this. But Lord, what we do know is we want Jesus. We want eternal life. We long for life now. Father, if there is anyone in this room who is not yet a Christ follower, I pray that through this time you would open their eyes to see the beauty and the freedom of following Jesus, that you, your gospel is for them. Amen. Uh, it's pretty hard. What did you all think? Like, he didn't just say it once. He kept saying it, right? Jesus kept talking about his body and his blood, and it's overwhelming. And so rather than doing what I typically do, here's what we're going to do. Two points to this sermon, okay? One, what did Jesus mean? I'm going to tell you what I think he means. And then two, how do we do this? How do we do this? So I'm just going to kind of make it simple, I hope. Um, it's, it seems simple. I think it's complex. My hope is as we process this chapter, um, who Jesus is and why we need him comes to life. So again, what did Jesus mean in these words, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and how do we do that? Um, so let's look back at John 6. I said this when we actually taught on the feeding of the 5,000. Um, remember, this crowd has come out to Jesus, and he's and his disciples are on a mountain. And at verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That verse, John puts right there because it matters. What is the Passover? You remember the story of the Exodus when Moses is rescuing his people out of Egypt. The final plague is the, is the death of the firstborn. And the only way to be saved is by a sheep being slaughtered and the blood being spread over the door of the home. And then the family would eat and consume the meat of that sheep, of that lamb, excuse me, and they were safe, and they leave. And what's fascinating about the Passover, by the way, is that when God is giving the instructions of the Passover about that's going to happen shortly, he also says, by the way, you're going to celebrate this every year. Like This is going to be something you need to live in and recognize for the rest of your lives until you go to heaven. And so we come to our passage and that's the backdrop, and it's the people who, by the way, when they f trace Jesus and track him down, they're the ones that bring up the Exodus. They're the ones that say, you know, our fathers had manna. What do you do? And so what Jesus is trying to explain to them, as we are talking about, he is the bread of life. He is the one whom they are to feed on. So what does that mean? So Augustine says, to eat is to believe. Earlier in this story, and I've talked about this a lot, and this is one of my favorite places in the Bible, but it's in chapter six. They've come to Jesus, right? They've, I, I picture sort of this kind of, you know, like, kind of like the picture of when Jesus' parents find him in the temple. You know when you're looking for somebody, and you finally find them, and you're not mad, but you've been busy? You know that feeling? You're like, where have you been? And you're like, as a kid, you're like, oh, I've been at the candy aisle. I mean, you know? Uh, they find Jesus in Capernaum and like, where were you? As if he owed them something to stay on the other side of the lake. 
And he says, do not labor for food or do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And the first thing they say, the only way they can think of that is this. What must we do to be doing the works of God? That's the way human beings operate. I want to be in the right space, the right lifestyle, the right habits, the right hobbies. What must I do? How do I fit in? How do I make this work? And Jesus' answer, believe in him. Here's what he says. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And I said a few weeks ago, we misunderstand believing. We think belief is just sort of a mental, once and for all, like I, I do believe. It's my new belief system. And I think the reason Jesus then goes into eating the flesh and drinking the blood is he's saying, you and I have a tendency to feed on things that die. Right? We pursue with our lives things that don't fill us up. So to continue the food metaphor um, that Jesus is introducing, because the people introduce, um, imagine a meal being cooked. It's a huge meal, and you're the one either cooking the meal or you're about to take your family out and pay for the meal, and, you're, and you watch your child eating, like, candy. You just start seeing them just stuff their mouth with candy, right? Why, why, that makes you kind of say, wait, stop that. Like, you're going to ruin this meal, You're made for this meal, and yet we go after things that are like cheap and and pointless and ruined. And that's that's what he says. Don't labor for food that's going to perish, that's going to die. Labor for the food that endures. So I think Jesus is taking their manna concept that they brought up, and he's saying they all ate the manna and they died, but you eat of my flesh and you will live. Okay? Clear as mud. Do you all, is that good? Does that, do you understand it now? Can we go out and have our eating, our cookout, and have our food? Why is this so amazing? Why is this so hard? Um, before I move into how we do it, I just want to make a few thoughts. Do you know, number one, and you know this, that you have a soul? Like you are an embodied soul. So when we eat food in our body, Jesus is saying, you have actually a soul that's hungrier than your body. Are you aware that you have that? Do you notice in your life that you are hungry? These people who are looking for Jesus are hungry for something. What they were hungry for was for Israel to reclaim its former glory and maybe go beyond that, that maybe Jesus is the prophet that Moses talked about, that maybe this Old Testament idea they had of their religion dominating and kicking Rome out would finally be realized in Jesus in an earthly kingdom. They were hungry, right? What are you hungry for? So that's the question as we move into point two. How do we then eat of Jesus. And the first answer is you have to pay attention to what you're eating. Right? What are you turning to? Right? What's the fast food you're shoving in your mouth spiritually? Y'all pay attention to that. Let's look at the Jews that are there. Right when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, the Jews grumbled about him 
because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. I want to talk about this next week a little bit more, but I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by their rationale. So they remember a lot of these people, I'm not sure how the overlap of the crowds worked because they're now in a synagogue in Capernaum, but a lot of these people saw a miracle. Like Jesus fed them from like nothing to the point where in verse 14 they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, okay, that's even more impressive than being the prophet. I get that. Now they're starting to apply reason and rationale, and they're saying, wait a minute, in verse 42, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Like, do you hear the shame? Like, do you hear, like, they're undercut, do you hear, like, how would, how would you feel if that were you? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's right, but let me tell you more, you know, I'm better than that, like, They've just undercut him, right? And what he does is he beautifully just holds his ground because he knows who his father is. And he says, do not grumble among yourselves. And so as I want you to pay attention to what you, I want to ask, how do you fill the void? How are you filling that sense? How are you trying to prove yourself daily? Like, let's just go around the room. Just kidding. Okay, so where do I want to go with that? Um, I talked about that. I led the women's Bible study on Tuesday, and I use this as an example, and I apologize. So men or women, men or women who choose to go buy shoes. Okay, it doesn't just have to be women. Retail therapy, right? What is retail therapy? It's where you say, I'm going to go to the store, and I'm going to buy a pair of shoes, Right? or a belt, or an outfit, or whatever the language is, right? And it makes you feel better. Anyone ever do that? Raise your hand. Can we just be honest? Brent Niles, that's, those are nice shoes. Which, so what we were discussing that day was the fruit of the Spirit, and I was processing how sin really has a relational sense to it. That we think we just engage in sin sort of in this vacuum, but what we're really longing for is a connection to our Heavenly Father. And so the challenge I had before me then and now is how do you buy, how does buying shoes do that? And here's the answer. Nobody goes to the mall and buys their favorite pair of shoes, at that moment at least, and goes and puts them in the closet and just wears it around their home. What do you do? You wear it out. And what do you want to hear? You want to hear someone go, wow, those are some amazing shoes. Like we want people to see our glory, right? We want people to love us. Buying shoes is okay, it's lawful, but you can turn it into a sin. But pornography is always wrong, yet pornography is another example of a relational sin. It's a person trying to have somebody tell them you're of value, you're of worth, I see you. And so this disconnection that's going on here is Jesus is saying, you are eating food that dies. You are developing processes of life to numb yourself 
from the fact that you need to go to the true meal. So we're like the child eating the candy, or maybe poison. I'm distinguishing between things that are lawful, but yet done out of order, retail therapy, from things that are just always wrong, poison. But both things are an attempt to avoid seeing our need for Jesus. What Jesus is showing in this passage is you need to begin to recognize why he doesn't fill you because you're turning to other things. So I'm going to ask the question again, what are the things that you run to, right? What are the things that you're going toward? Do you realize that you're hungry? I listened to a story uh, this week of a guy who... um, he had moved from a secure job across the country with his wife and like two young children to work with his brother in a business and it's kind of a risk and he became depressed. And in his depression, uh, his family, his mom and dad and wife who loved him well came around him and said, um, we think there's a problem. So he began to process his story and his problem. And so uh, somehow he goes to a church group gathering that explores your story and uh, kind of looking at your narrative, what's gone on in your life and how it might manifest in your present day. Because their thought was this depression, which you have no understanding of why you feel, might be linked to something else. So anyway, he tried to sit out, goes to this uh, thing, this class, and as he's processing some stories, he remembers a time where uh, working for his father his dad owned a business. He was welding. Billy, I'm going to ruin the welding il- illustration, but here's what he did. He had like a hood. It was hot outside. He's like 13. And I, I don't know how this works, but there's some sand involved. Is that right? Do you use sand to weld? Let's just say you do. Don't worry about it. So part of his job was to go in where it was shaded, and I don't think it was air conditioned, but he's out of the heat, takes the hood off, and he has to get some sand in a bucket. Well, he would linger there just a little longer than normal. And he said he just knew this one moment, he's like 13, doing this, and he's just kind of taking his time. And this was apparently a really, really long building, several hundred feet. And he looks at the other end, and he sees his dad, who makes eye contact with him, and just gives him this look of shame, like you're wasting time. And he just said, I felt in that moment, I am never going to slack off. Like, I'm never going to work less. And from, he just sees that as a defining story that says, I am going to work harder than anybody else. So for him, his view of his own father is one of condemnation and shame. And he makes agreements and vows to never get that look again. And so later in life, now that he's in this modern, his current situation, something has ruptured and he's feeling that disapproval. He's feeling that shame. He's feeling that condemnation. What was so amazing about this particular story is his dad was one of the guys teaching the class. Can you imagine? His dad was teaching, and so as he's telling that story, it's his dad who hears him say this, and his dad weeps and says, I I don't remember that, but I definitely know. The mantra was that growing up, if you're not working hard, you're a bum. And the dad repented of that. So here's the son seeing a a present-day loving father repairing this earlier image of his dad. 
But what's leading to the depression, and the point I'm making is we will do things to keep that look from happening. We will result to things. We will turn to areas of our lives to keep this imagined look of negativity from happening. And what Jesus is teaching us in this passage is running to him, seeing him, going to him is the alternative to doing those things like working harder, learning more, getting another degree, making more money, looking better, dressing better. What, what are your things? What are you feeding on? Another way to say it is this, what unsettles you? I was at Presbytery, and um, I remember when I did RUF, this had happened. When you get around colleagues, you start to really see your sin. Like, how is my ministry comparing to their ministry? Are, are they interested in what I'm doing? What are they doing? Like, you, do you get into that in your world? Do you see those behaviors? What I'm asking you to do now is this. Process how that is shifting your belief in Jesus to your belief in something else for your salvation, for your righteousness, for how you feel about yourself. So Jesus says, come to me for real food. Right, come to me and eat. Come to me and drink. Um, I want to show you, by the way, in our passage where the two things overlap. In verse 40, he says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 54 he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So he's showing that this eating and this drinking is a picture of believing. Now the Passover was yearly, right? But I think what's beautiful, and by the way, in Jewish law, you never drank blood. Like, you never touched blood. So here, he's taking this concept to the nth degree and saying, you have to feast on me and with me all the time. What does that mean? You have to recognize you are needing the righteousness of Christ. Like, how many meals do you all eat a day? Like, three? So is it too much to say that three times a day we should be coming before the Lord and saying, and I'm being a little bit legalistic on purpose. You don't have to do it three times. You can do four. Um, coming before the Lord and looking at your own day and saying, Lord, I have been running from you. I have been worried about this. This is the way I've been viewing myself. These are the things I've avoided. I could have shared the gospel here. Like, Are we approaching him with confessions of sin? Are we approaching him and saying, I need your righteousness because I've been trying to establish my own righteousness? Does that make sense? All right. It's really, we're going to have another discussion next week. Hopefully I'll make more sense. Um, but I want to say it this way. When you eat something other than Jesus, what you are doing is positioning yourself under the law. Right? Um, in Galatians 3, one of my favorite places in the scripture, the Galatians have gone from the gospel that Paul has preached to circumcision, which is basically Jewish rites and rituals, to find their identity. And Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
it was Christ portrayed to you. The cross was publicly portrayed to you. And yet now you're seeking your, to perfect yourself, to get better by works of the law, by things that you're doing for yourself. Okay? And as I was processing that, I thought, okay, that's circumcision, but what about when you use the law to get better? But we know Romans 7, Paul says, thou shalt not covet, right? That's the 10th commandment. But even that, you're not able to achieve apart from Jesus. So the point is, is that we, I, I'm just trying to encourage us, and I'm going to close with this illustration to illustrate this, to be aware of the ways that we're sitting underneath some obligation that we have put on ourselves to feel better. And what Jesus is offering us is a, is a freedom of his righteousness, of his identity, of his message. So when we eat of Jesus, what he's saying, what we're doing is we're bringing our own stuff to him daily and possibly four times or three times, however often you eat. And he is saying, I love you. I rescue you. You have my identity. What does that do for you? So we were at this retreat this week for Presbytery. And uh, one of the things we did was we all broke into groups. And we did this. We, this it's called Lecto. Am I saying, Shane, Lecto Divinia? What is that? It's really cool. It's one of those things that at first you're kind of like, I don't know. It sounds Latin. Well, it is. But what we do is you take a passage, and we did it as a group. And we've done this before. It's really helpful. And these are a bunch of pastors who like Greek, you know, or at least we pretend to. And um, no, we do. We love it. And we want to be exegetically correct, but you're sitting there and you're reading this passage prayerfully and you're asking Jesus to show you things you haven't seen in this passage. And then, after doing that and praying and, and kind of talking about it, you read it again. And I think we end up reading it three times. And it's crazy how every time we read it, something brand new came out. So I would encourage, just as an aside, when you read your scripture, you can read lots of stuff, or you can just take a small passage. If you're like, how do I read my Bible more? Take something you're even familiar with, a story maybe, and just pray, Jesus, show me something new. Maybe read it two or three times and note those things that are jumping out. Well, here's what jumped out to me. This is the story of blind Bartimaeus. So let me just tell you what happens. Blind Bartimaeus, and that's not what he's called in the passage. That's what you call him in the children's Bible is a blind man who, by the way, is the son of Timaeus. Okay. He's sitting there at the edge of the road, and Jesus and the crowd are walking by. I don't know how he knows that, but he begins to yell to Jesus because he's blind, right? He can't go up to him. He doesn't know how to walk and get to him. He yells really loudly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. Do you hear the shame? Like, shh. Do you feel that? Like, what does he do? Does it again. All the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. And he says to the people around him, call him. And all of a sudden, the people who were shaming him are like, hey, you know, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Like, you were right to yell. So, he goes to Jesus, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do? 
And the blind man says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Two things that blow my mind about this passage that I purposely have not read to trick you. No, to tell you what they are. Number one, Jesus says, go your way. You are well. He doesn't say you can see. There is this sense in which he's saying you are saved. And then the next words are, and he, um, immediately he recovered his sight and he follows Jesus on the way. So his way was Jesus. Do you understand? He didn't go, I have my sight, all the things I want to go do now. I've always wanted to go visit that place. Or he follows Jesus. But here's my favorite part of the passage. When, when they say, hey, take heart, Jesus is calling for you. This is the gospel of Mark. It's the shortest, probably the first written of the gospels. It's co-written by Peter. It's very tight in its language. So pay attention to words that give description. Listen to what it says. And throwing off his cloak. Just picture that. He sprang up and came to Jesus. That's what feeding on Jesus looks like. Just the, the weight of the world. Brothers and sisters, we carry it everywhere we go. And Jesus is saying, "Come, throw it off. Rise up. And run to him. And you are well. You don't have to do anything to prove that. Go to him for food and drink and life. And he will fill you with his spirit. Let us pray. Jesus, we come to you for life. We, we all know. We turn to our phones, our reputations, the likes on Facebook, the look that our spouse gives us or doesn't give us. We turn to so many things to try to feel who we are. And the only thing that we need to know is that our Heavenly Father, you, Lord, delight in us because of Jesus. And Jesus, you have come into us and made your home in us because of your spirit, with your spirit, because you died on that cross. We needed that. But Lord, I pray we would rejoice at our adoption and all the blessings, blessings that flow from the cross and that we would come and feed every single day to you and with you. Teach us, Lord, to throw the cloak off our back that we carry and spring up for your glory. Amen.